don't know. I'm yeah. just thinking to myself, like, how twisted do you have to be to try to take away a poor kid's lunch because you're upset that a, a boy can't swim on the girls' swim team? I mean, it's really, really ludicrous that they would do that. Hey, Joyful Warriors. Welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. So excited to have presidential candidate and governor of the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, joining us. We just did a a wonderful uh, little interview on main stage. You spoke to the Joyful Warriors at the summit. What did you think, Governor DeSantis? What what was that like for you to have all those moms in there applauding you? Well, that's the energy that I think is very potent right now in, in politics, because I think moms, parents generally, but particularly moms, have seen what's off kilter with our school system across the country, and they've had enough of it. They want to do something about it. And so obviously we had a lot of our Florida moms there who were integral in us making a huge changes in Florida that have been very beneficial. But I think 2024 is going to be the year where parents fight back. And so we've got to be harnessing that and we've got to show parents that, that we stand for their rights and their fundamental role in, in raising their children. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you know this, but 39% of our members had never voted in a primary before. Yeah. So you have a whole new group of people that are engaging in politics, right, that are running for office. 76% of our candidates had never run for office before. So that's just, I think, really amazing. What do you think a, a whole new group of people engaging in American politics says for the future of America? Well, I think it's a testament that when things are going good, people can kind of fly under the radar and they're compelled to get involved because they see things are off kilter and the schools are a great example. I mean, we did and you guys were involved, 29 new conservative school board members in the state of Florida in 2022. And what we did, and kind of my role in that was our school board elections, as you know, are nonpartisan. So what the unions will do, they'll get behind a liberal candidate, but then they'll message to conservative voters that they're as American as apple pie. So what we did was we said, okay, we're going to let kind of the Republican voters and independent voters know who the good candidate is. Uh, we're going to advertise for them, and we're going to be very clear about who the, who the union-backed candidate is. What ended up happening is... We had more Republicans vote in the in the primary in, in August in Florida, even though we had no governor primary, no Senate primary, no attorney general primary. There really wasn't a big reason to vote uh, in, in a lot of this. School boards drove the turnout. And so it's not just that that people are running or even activists. Yes, that's true. Voters now care more about school board races. They're looking at these races because they've seen uh, what's happened with the schools and some of it during COVID and you, you experienced this, you had red counties that had liberal majorities on their school board. So you go like Lee County in Florida and they're fighting me on saying kids shouldn't be forced to mask. Like I get Gainesville, Alachua fighting sure, me. Sure, sure. I get Broward fighting me. Right. But to have like Lee and Sarasota counties, Indian River County, County, how could you do that? So uh, but I think ultimately this is good. We understand it matters. And and I'm as governor, it's I think especially important for for me to say, look, I've signed all this stuff. You know, no CRT, Parents Bill of Rights, Parents Rights in Education, all this. I'm happy to do it. None of it works if you have school boards across the state that are trying to kneecap all the policies. you got to have people there 
who are going to ensure those policies are implemented faithfully. And so I think it's been absolutely essential. We're going to do more races in 2024 yes, and be able to do it. And yeah. it's going to make a huge impact. And I, and I think you want to make sure that the education system doesn't get off kilter. You got to have good people up and down because the natural gravity of it is to pull it off track sure. because there's all these different folks that, that, that want to do that. Many of them aren't even necessarily living in our state, but they, they have influence in a variety of contexts. No, you're right. And I asked you on the main stage about this, but what we saw, what I saw as school board members were procedural procedures happening in the schools that never made it to us as school board members. It wasn't policy. We weren't voting on it. And I asked you if you were surprised. So let's just talk about that for a second. These procedural documents uh, for students in schools that were allowing for private conversations uh, January Littlejohn, you know, yeah. Leon County, right? Her daughter was taken into a, a room with adults, not her parents, and she filled out six pages of forms. What bathroom would she use when she was at school? What name would she be called at school? What name would that teacher use uh, with the parent uh, to hide what was happening in the school? I would just imagine, I mean, I was shocked as a mom. You and Casey, as parents, I, can't, I just can't imagine, like, at the kitchen table, what that conversation sounds like. Well, I mean, yeah, you think about it, it, it's a it's a blatant invasion of the prerogative of the parents. I mean, the fact that they're doing that behind a parent's back uh, is a huge, huge problem. Forget about even behind the back. They should not be concerned with this in school. Right. And I think what you're seeing is you're seeing parts in other parts of the country. It's very significant. You know, they want to create gender confusion. Yeah. They're sowing the seeds of this. You know, that's why you have some of these polls showing, you know, these younger kids, you know, are more and more confused now. It's a social contagion. And they're bringing it into the schools through kind of the side door. Yep. There's not debate about it. It's just becoming kind of the operating pr procedures of how it does. So in Florida, we said, no, that's not going to work here. Uh, and we, we empowered parents to be able to, uh, to protect against that. But how did, I guess we were just surprised it's like, even five years ago, I don't think this was going on. Definitely not 10 years ago. And all of a sudden now, it's like, this is like standard operating procedure, but it shows you how our schools are influenced. There are these external uh, actors uh, who, have a, who have a hotline in there. And I think the teachers union have been a big part of it because they're very, very partisan left and everything they're trying to do. And they really have been, I mean, in some respects, they've been honest about just saying they don't believe the parents, they think parents should just butt out, that, that somehow parents don't have enough uh, knowledge about what goes on in the school, and so leave it to them right. to handle, and you guys just be grateful for that. That is totally unacceptable. I agree with you. And so let's talk about influence in education. A lot of people have said that you've been an excellent steward of education. There are others that would say that perhaps you've had a heavy hand. but. Education really is up to the state, right? And so as president, how will you, you know, work for the future of education? And I, I say this to you because I remember seeing a picture of Randy Weingarten sitting with Nikki Fried, I think in Broward County, having a meeting when you had 11 school districts that were basically thumbing their nose at you, right? Saying, we don't care about a parent's bill of rights. We think the CDC's recommendations are a compelling interest to be able to negate parental rights. And then we saw the Biden administration saying that they were going to try to kind of cut you off at the knees and not be able to hold these districts accountable. So you have the federal government right coming into a state and really trying to take away your power and the rights of parents what were you thinking in that time and as president how will you respect states rights but still lead as far as a vision for education in america so at the end of the day uh you know these schools are supported by the taxpayer 
So we have every right to set standards and to set things that are appropriate or not appropriate. And so in this instance, it wasn't just me doing it. The legislature passed a parent's bill of rights that said parents have primacy on things like medical decisions. So I did an executive order once that bill was signed into law that gave me, I thought, authority to say masking is a parent's choice. If a parent wants to put the mask on, I mean, personally, I think it's harmful. I, I would not do that with my kids and we never did it. But OK, fine. But for a school district to override the parent and force a six year old to be in a mask all day, understand, I'm not a uh, I don't think the masks were effective, period. But anyone who likes masks would have to acknowledge you got to wear it properly. Is a first grader wearing the mask properly? I mean, it ends up more germs and all this stuff. So it was ridiculous. So we set that down and they basically thumbed their nose at us when we won because they sued and we won that. Um, But uh, from a federal perspective, what's the proper role of the federal government? I mean, I think it's a state issue, you know, generally. However, federal government does a lot of grants and a lot of money uh, to, to that. And you don't have to take it. But if you do, we have every right to condition that funding on ensuring you're respecting parents' rights, on ensuring you're respecting the civil rights of, of girls to be able to use the bathroom or the locker room without having a boy in there, right. uh, to be able to play to play sports fairly. They've tried to do the opposite on us. They threatened that because we have protections for girls' sports, they would take away school lunch money. Right, let's yeah. talk about that and for so, a you know, I'm yeah. just thinking to myself, like, how twisted do you have to be to try to take away a poor kid's lunch because you're upset that a boy can't swim on the girls' swim team. I mean, it's really, really ludicrous that they would do that. But they have the power of the purse, and so they're asserting authority there. We can assert it the other way uh, with with some of the funding and say, you know what? It's a violation of civil rights uh, to, to not allow them to compete fairly. It's a violation of the parents' rights to push gender ideology behind their back. And so I think both from an education perspective and a, and a Justice Department perspective, uh, I think that there's going to be levers um, that we're going to be able to pull. Great, because I saw uh, Miguel Cardona sitting in a, a, me- a congressional meeting being questioned. I think he was asked several times, will you take lunch money for in order to impose Title IX regulations? And he wouldn't answer that question. And so it is concerning for people. I like to talk about gender ideology and what uh, some people called gender affirming care but doesn't seem to be very caring so you have taken or, or, affirming. or affirming i mean affirming. you know <laughs> you have you have a 14 year old girl you're not affirming her gender you're trying to mutilate her to change her gender which right. you can't do but um you know that's what they're trying to do so the whole thing is a euphemism to mask what is really happening because if you say gender affirming care people kind of just shrug their shoulders not even sure what that means sometimes the media will actually say if we say no puberty blockers no sex change they will say florida does not want to give health care to transgender which obviously you get any health care that's not the issue the issue is the appropriateness of these procedures so the whole thing shows how the media and the left use euphemisms to try to sanitize what they're doing. Because if you told people this 14-year-old girl is being put on puberty blockers and she's gonna have a double mastectomy to try to change her into a boy, 
90% of people are going to think that that's inappropriate. I mean, you can't even as a 14-year-old get a tattoo because the idea is, you know, you're kind of too young to to make that decision. It's a perm. I know they can be removed, but it's basically a permanent thing unless you get an intervention. So you got to be an adult to make that decision. But somehow you can do this at these very young ages. I mean, so it's really wrong. So I never use that term Uh, when I'm talking about it. I say, you know, we've said no puberty blockers, no mutilation, no sex changes for the minors in Florida. And that's just the way it's going to be. Here's the thing. These teenagers go through a lot in life. It's a a confusing time. It is a hard time. I'd like to meet the girl who said, like, puberty was great. I absolutely loved it. No, it's it's just not a a fun time. But how do we help kids to kind of really celebrate who they are rather than this idea that they're born in the wrong body. Well, I think obviously when the schools are putting that into their face, then they're they're more apt to think that this right. is a this is a pathway. And so we, we, we believe there's no place in, in school for gender ideology. I agree. Uh, and we've eliminated it um, in pre-K through eight now with the statute. And then even in high school, gender dysphoria, it could be talked about in like health class as like an academic subject, but we're not allowing indoctrination with it with dysphoria, uh, with, with uh, transgender in high school either, because it's just inappropriate. Um, and so you have that. But the issue with with kind of the surgeries that we found out is like almost 90 percent of the dysphoria resolves itself by the time they become 18 anyways. OK, so why would you do a, a brutal surgical intervention that's irreversible when the chances are this is something that that basically fades away. Right. And I've talked to parents who they had a child come to them, say that they were a different gender. It was like a really serious thing. And so they're thinking as parents, OK, how do I handle this? And so one of the guys told me, he's like, I just told my I told my daughter, you know, let's just let's just wait a couple months. And if you feel this way, you know, I'll support you. And then like two weeks later, she came and she's like, yeah, I don't know why I said that. I'm not fine. So it's like, OK, this is just something. It's just this phase, right? But just imagine now you have doctors that want to make money off this. So they're telling parents, you've got to do these interventions. Otherwise, your kid's going to commit suicide. That's what they're telling them. If you don't do this, you're going to lose your child. That's false. That is just not true. Uh, 80, 90 percent of the kids, this resolves naturally. But that's where we are. People are making money off of it. They are making a lot of money. And people people are pursuing an ideological agenda on this. And so we've said no in Florida. It's interesting. People are going to court, federal court around the country, getting liberal judges to basically find a constitutional right to minor mutilation, which is not going to fly with the Supreme Court. So we had a judge identify three people that he enjoined the thing against because I guess they had already started the puberty blockers. But the rest of our our law is in effect in Florida. Uh, But it just shows you the fact that that would be the case. Uh, There are definitely going to be courts that are really going to entertain yes, the, the gender ideology. And it, it, it's kind of like a, um, a, a, an analogy to the schools where influences come in through the back door. The federal judiciary, liberal judges, they have lifetime appointment. The way that liberal academia, liberal groups hotline in cultural positions right into the judiciary is pretty remarkable. It I is. mean, there's a direct line there. And if this is a hot issue with the left, those judges typically fall in line. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, I, and I, I fear that to a certain degree because I think a lot of Americans don't really see and understand the capture of our judicial system. And I do think that there has been a certain amount of capture that we are going to see and, and reap the harms from uh, going forward. And well, so- in, I mean, 2024, we're in a situation, if the, if the Democrats sweep, 
they're going to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so they're going to add four seats, all liberal justices, 13-member court from nine, and it'll be a liberal majority. And all of this stuff will be imposed from the Supreme Court, and we'll have very little recourse of that because you'd have to amend the Constitution, basically. And so this is a really significant inflection point. You know, we now have a court where there's three solid liberals, leftists, and then there's six either conservative or kind of moderate. And so some of these cases go 6-3. But some of the more moderate conservatives can go left on some things. You're going to end up with the next, if you have a two-term presidency, you will likely have to replace Justices Thomas and Alito, who are the two best justices on the court. And if you don't get those right, the court can move left. Obviously, a, a liberal president's going to move it way left. You may be able to make a couple more appointments and solidify the court. But I think all the problems in district courts and all that Right now, we have a chance to have a backstop at the U.S. Supreme Court. If we're good in the election, two-term president, you know, I'll be able to ensure the court is good for a generation, and that will put a check on all that. If we don't, if Biden gets in or, we make bad, or someone makes bad picks, Katie, bar the door, because they're going to be doing this in San Francisco, all these places. It's going to go up. And you're not going to have any relief at the Supreme Court. You know, and what, you seem like you've given a lot of thought to that, and, and I really appreciate the way that you are very strategic in accomplishing your goals. So in Florida, you've talked about using the different levers of power and not making a change just for the sake of, of being able to have a press conference and say there's a change, but making a change that's lasting, um, that we can really put weight into. Um, quickly, the Board of Medicine met and, and really took up the idea of gender dysphoria and worked to change the standard of care. That was groundbreaking yeah. in the United States. Miriam Grossman uh, testified for you, Dr. Grossman. Yeah. She gave me a book to give to you, so yeah. I've passed that on to your team. Um, you had Chloe Cole and others come and testify. Chloe, a detransitioner, uh, speaking about uh, her life and, and making different decisions coming out of that uh, fog that she said she was living in. So just talk a little bit about you as a statesman. Yeah. Uh, you know, using the different levers of power and then making sure that the changes that you make are lasting and substantial. So before I became governor, I told my guys, compile me all the list of the governor's powers in the Constitution and statute, customary powers. What are my powers vis-a-vis -vis local government? Because, you know, I came in, I removed the sheriff of Broward. Yes, we did. did the election supervisors in southern Florida and all that stuff. And so I had a sense of, OK, what are my options to be able to bring all this stuff in for a landing? Sure. Because you go headstrong into something, there's checks and balances and you don't want to do that with the schools. I don't really have the the authority over schools as governor unilaterally. Right. You have school districts, you have school boards, and and they do it, and and they can close for a flu for a week for flu and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So so they were they were all closed uh, in, in June of 2020. What I had to say is, how do I remedy this? And so we were we had the emergency order. And, and a lot of that is just being able to move money around and spend, you know, to combat COVID at this time or it could be hurricane, whatever the emergency is. A lot of the governors around the country are using the emergency orders to lock people down, uh, to suppress, to mandate. We decided to use the emergency powers to tell school districts, look, um, if you open five days a week for everybody, we'll hold you harmless on any of the financial loss that you could have for kids not being in school in person. Uh, whereas if you're closed, you, you're going to lose the money. And so we leveraged that to where they really had no choice but to open. And in fairness, there were a lot of school superintendents that did want to open. Mm -hmm. A lot of teachers wanted to be back in. There were a lot of school board members that wanted it, but not enough to where it would have it would have been. So so we had to do that. 
And so we did that. Same thing with how we did with local governments. You know, I said, you can't shut businesses down, emergency order saying you can't do it, you can't fine people for not wearing a mask. I used my pardon and clemency power to do a, a, a prospective pardon. Anyone, if you if Broward wants to fine you because you didn't wear a mask to the right. gym, we're relieving you of the fines. And so we were able to kind of strategically pull these levers to have the state be free because, you know, you could say, oh, Florida, the state isn't imposing restrictions. But if you have Fauciism in every other city, it's not a free state. So, so we did that and we're able to go. But you just have to know kind of where it is. Now, I think the difference between Washington and Florida the bureaucracy is obviously much more entrenched. Yeah. The problems are much more severe than, than what we deal with in Florida. But the levers available to you are probably a lot more substantial sure. um, in terms of your ability to really shape the bureaucracy. I mean, things like the military. You know, we're going to get the woke out of the military oh, on day one. We're going to get the military back to where it needs to be. And recruiting has suffered. A lot of warriors have been driven off because of the drift of the mission. You get that back, people are going to want to sign up. I mean, they want to serve their country, but they want to know that they're serving an institution uh, that is really focused on the prize and not becoming politicized. Yeah, it feels like betrayal, to be honest with you, to have government schools that are indoctrinating kids. And you talk about the military, some of the military schools through the DODEA, the, the indoctrination that's happening in this, some of these schools, it's just mind-blowing to me that people are going and serving for our country and trusting that these schools will take care of their kids, and then the schools are actually working against the parents. It is a betrayal. Um, quickly, I was watching uh, the news one day, and I think it was a, a Fox reporter, and you were walking around holding Mason. And the Fox reporter said something like, oh, you know that Ron DeSantis is running for president because there he is holding a baby. <laughs> Tina and I were like, that's his baby. So what is it like? And we were cracking up. So what is it like with kids? Seriously, you know, we talked about it a little bit. I, I'm seeing you and Casey, you're out at fairs and stuff. The kids <laughs> must really be enjoying it because they're trying all these new foods and meeting people and going to so many cool places. So what is that been I, like I think by and large, you know, it's funny though. Um, uh, actually, when I signed the women's sports bill a couple years ago, I brought Madison. So she was probably four at the time, maybe five, four or five, uh, to the press conference. She'd hand me the pens yes. and I'd do it and all that stuff. And so, you know, it was fun. So then we go, since we were in town, we went and stopped at a barbecue joint to just like, meet with supporters. And as we're pulling into the barbecue joint, there's people lining the driveway with like, you know, go governor, we love our governor signs. And so Madison's sitting there in the car seat. She looks, she sees all the people lined up and she's like, oh that. no, not again. Because like, you know, when we go, we get a crush of people and yeah. it's great. I mean, yeah, people right. are very thankful for, for, for what we've done. And so, so when we go in places, we get the crush and, and that's when they're just like, oh man, you know, what's going on? And so, so, so they've kind of like, of acute, I think acclimated to that, that sometimes in public that that's the case. But yeah, they've been able to go see a bunch of stuff. I mean, they were at the rodeo in Reno, Nevada uh, recently. We were in Oklahoma with them. They got to come to the Reagan Library oh, uh, when cool. I spoke. This is before I was a candidate, but we were doing, doing my book at the Reagan Library. Yeah. And it was funny because like they sat us right in the front. So Casey, we only had the two older, Madison Mason and me. I go up to speak 
And they were pretty good listening to about 15 minutes of the speech. But after that, I think they had heard it all. So they started getting restless and everything. It's dad. You're just yeah. dad to them. Casey, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Casey had to call an audible and we had to do that. Um, and they, she took them on like the Air Force One and all this stuff. But yeah, I think it, for us, it's just we just want to spend time with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, this job is, you know, as governor, I'm constantly traveling around uh, anyways. And um, I just make an effort to if we can get home quicker, fine. If they can come with us, fine. We do that. But, you know, I've taken them on press conferences, Madison and Mason, especially. I think Mamie, she's three. I probably could do her too um, at this point. You know, she had a she had a little terrible twos there for a while, where do. she's very sweet. Then all of a sudden, I mean, <laughs> it could go go off the. So we're due, but we have all three of them together. They're, they're doing well, but I think most parents know, like, if you have one, fine. You have two usually, but if you have three... If You're outnumbered. If something goes wrong, it no. can snowball, <laughs> where, like, one misbehaves, and then they all kind of start misbehaving. Right. So we're kind of working on that. But, yeah, they've been able... Uh, when we were going to... Uh, coming back from Nevada, they actually had um, a... a map of the U.S., and they were coloring in the states that they had been to. Oh, that's so neat. And when I was a kid, uh, up until I went to college... I had only been to like, obviously, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, where my parents are from. I don't think I had been anywhere else. Right. Um, and then they're now in a situation where they've been to Texas. They've been to, they've been to South Carolina. They've been to a lot of these places. And so I think it's probably a good experience for them uh, to be able to do it. And they're young enough that all the vitriol and all the nastiness just, from the press that just goes uh, kind, of, kind of goes right over their head. That's good to know. So I just want to tell you, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast yeah. and speaking today. And I want to tell you, I think for a lot of American parents watching you and Casey, watching Vivek run with kids, right? People, men and women, Nikki's, uh, Haley's a mom. I think it's giving us a lot of hope because you understand what our concerns are and you are willing to fight for us and our parental rights. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for joining us. You are a joyful warrior. <laughs> Need to get you a hat and I hope you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. And keep up the good work. Uh, I said out there, they're gunning for you guys. Uh, and that's a testament that you're effective. Uh, and I always think it's great when people protest me because if I wasn't effective, they wouldn't waste their time. 100%. And so they understand you guys are tapping into something that threatens the left's grip on the educational system in this country because they know most people agree with what you're doing. So keep it up. We say bring it for such a time as this. Good deal. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it. Yep. Yeah.